All right, so we're working our way through the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 11 this semester, taking each, really verse by verse, and each biblical uh, figure and unpacking their life in the Old Testament, seeing not just a picture of their faith, but God's faithfulness in an unbelieving world. So let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Father in heaven, we thank you for life and breath this morning. We thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that this is much more than a book, but that this word um, is powerful. It's our food this morning. Not only does it nourish us, but it tastes good to our lips. We pray that uh, we would delight in your word. It changes us. Lord, we thank you for the way that your word pierces us through that it has the power through the gospel to transform us. Lord, thank you for that great good news, that story from Genesis to Revelation, the story of your son fulfilling the promises for us through his death and resurrection. We pray that you would teach us something of your faithfulness to those promises this morning. And then for all of us for this next hour or so, for this time together as a big group and then at our tables, Lord, that you would, you would work that we would leave this place more conformed to the image of the Son than when we came in. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you've been with us, you know that we're working our way again through Hebrews chapter 11. The last couple weeks, uh, for some of you, may have been the first time that you've ever studied uh, characters like Cain and Abel. For some of you, maybe Enoch is even something you've never even heard of or someone that you've certainly not studied, today we don't have that issue. Today we're talking about Noah. Noah is one of those biblical figures that if you've grown up in church, you've certainly heard of Noah. Uh, You have no shortage of, in fact, in our own church down down, um, uh, underneath, there's pictures of of animals, right? And if you've ever grown up with felt boards and a way of telling the story in Sunday school, you've heard of Noah. If you did not grow up in church, you've still probably heard of Noah. Uh, There's no shortage of pop cultural references to Noah, the ark, and the flood. Uh, And movies, even in the last 10 years or so, that have come out about Noah and the ark. I don't know if you saw any of them. There's the movie Noah uh, with Russell Crowe in it. Anyone see that one? Uh, So that came out, I think, back in 2015, 16, somewhere in there. And then there's my personal favorite, Evan Almighty. Anyone see Evan Almighty? Man, it's a great movie with Steve Carell. The idea of what if this story of knowing the ark happened today? And what if it just happened to a man named Evan? (laughs) It's great. Uh, So look, the point is, look, today's challenge a little bit different than last week with Enoch, where maybe you didn't have much reference in your heart and mind about Enoch. Today's challenge is that you've been inundated with at least some idea of Noah, and there's a lot of questions maybe surrounding that. Um, for some of you, you're more influenced by what culture has said about Noah and the ark than what the Bible has said. And today's a good opportunity to begin to ask the question, what does the Bible actually say about Noah, the ark, and the flood. Others of you, I think the issue of Noah is kind of like the same issue that we have with Jonah. It falls under those categories of biblical stories in the Old Testament that we have a hard time believing. 
how could this actually be true? So for the example of Jonah, the idea that this man got swallowed up into the belly of a giant fish and stayed there for three days and then got spit up on dry land and lived to tell the tale, right? Seems just so unfathomable. How could that be true? Or the idea of Noah, that God flooded the entire earth and that a man was asked to build a giant floating zoo. It's what it was. And that he and his family would get into the ark. They stayed on it for 370 days with all of these animals until the floodwaters receded. And that just seems too hard to believe. And so we put it in this category, I think, even as Christians, where it's like, well, I just want to think about it that much. (laughs) Like, I know it's there, uh, but the more I think about it, the more questions I have, and I, that just kind of weirds me out. So some of you might be in that category today. Others of you, there's no shortage because it's one of these big stories. Uh, there's lots of hypotheses out there. There's lots of conspiracy theories. There's people who think they have found the ark. Um, and if you look that up, it's fascinating um, because there's no conclusive evidence that they have. There's about 10 people, 10 groups that think they've found the ark <laughs> in all these different places around Turkey. Uh, which is the area the Bible says that the ark finally came to rest on dry land. Uh, There are um, geological studies, archaeological studies. There's no shortage of all of these evidences that try to prove, without a shadow of a doubt, scientifically, that the story of Noah and the ark and the flood is true. This morning, I want to tell you why I believe that the story of Noah and the ark is historical fact. I believe in the biblical account of the flood and Noah and the ark, not because of um, carbon dating, not because of new geological studies, although those evidences can be compelling, Uh, not even because, uh, I didn't even mention this, there are um, tons of ancient myths out there. Maybe you've heard of the Gilgamesh epic. Maybe that is what you read last night before we went to bed, right? A bunch of you did Uh, these Mesopotamian Babylonian stories of a great flood that came and destroyed the earth and that the gods sent it. Some people like to say, well, that's proof that this can't be trusted. It's a copy. And I would say, no, no, no. It's proof that it did happen, that you have extra biblical evidence, ancient that it did happen. And Genesis is giving us the story of who actually sent it, right? But that's not even why I believed it. Here's why I believe in the story of Noah and the ark and the flood. Because Jesus believed the story of Noah and the ark and the flood. Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Savior of the world, God himself who knows all things, referenced Noah and the ark and the flood, taking it to be historical fact, using its events to teach us about himself, his return, and the idea of mercy and judgment. That's in Matthew chapter 24. We'll look at that in greater detail in just a little bit. But not only did Jesus believe in Noah, the ark, and the flood, but the writer of Hebrews, the pastor who is preaching to the small church and our guide for this semester, also believed in Noah, the ark, and the flood and used that story, that real story, that true story to teach us something of the nature of faith and God's faithfulness. And so I want you to look at your sheet or get out a Bible This is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. The author of Hebrews says this, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events 
as yet unseen. So before we get into the idea of faith, I just want us to get our bearings for just a second. And you'll see we're going to be focusing largely on Genesis 6, 11 through 22 as kind of our Old Testament background text. We'll be looking at a few other places as well. The story of Noah and the flood goes from Genesis 6 through Genesis 9. I just want you to look at verse 11, Genesis 6, verse 11. Author of Genesis picks up the story here saying, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. In the last couple weeks, we have seen this violence. If you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about Cain and Abel, this first murder in the Bible, violence of brother against brother. And if you paid attention to the story, the idea of Cain killing Abel, Cain then establishes a city. And Genesis tells us that as Cain establishes this city, this city and all of these human cities that are now being built are being founded on human violence and corruption and great sexual immorality and adultery and orgies and all of these things that you're just reading the first few chapters of the book of Genesis and you see that this idea, God making man in his image, has been completely broken. And as we read, of course, the fall, and we read Adam and Eve and the way that they sinned against God by not believing his promise, not believing that he could be trusted, wanting to uh, become like him, which ironically they already were made in his image, and yet the great lie of the serpent, you're going to be like God, they were already made in his image. If they didn't see that, they sin, they go directly against his word, which is what you and I do every single day, that is the essence of sin. They disbelieve him, full of unbelief. Sin enters the world and all that comes with it. Violence and brokenness. And so God looks down on this world that he's made. He looks down on these people that were supposed to be bearing his image. And all they are bearing is the fall. And he sees, verse 11, the earth was filled with violence. The earth was filled with corruption. So verse 13, God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. One of the things I want you to see about the story of Noah and the flood, it is is a story both about God's wrath and about God's mercy. We'll see that it's a story of God's wrath and that this is a story about judgment. It's why the idea of knowing the ark and felt boards and a great kid's story actually is a bit disingenuous. It doesn't really tell the whole story. Because when you're talking about all these animals going on the ark and Noah and his family going on the ark, you're at the same time talking about everybody who's not on the ark being wiped off of the face of the earth because of God's judgment. But it's not just a story about God's judgment, it's also about his mercy. That in his mercy and grace, God came to a man named Noah. He sent an ark to be his salvation. If you know the story of Noah, I won't talk about his whole story today, but you know after that Noah is saved through the ark, his story doesn't end very well. Noah was not a perfect man. In fact, he was far from it. Not only does Noah get the credit of being this guy who built the ark out of faith and did this amazingly foolish thing, seemingly like the eyes of the world, and building this giant ark and getting in it and putting all these animals on it and floating around in a floating zoo. Not only does he get that credit, 
he gets the credit of being the first drunk in the Bible. First account of somebody getting drunk. And the shame that came from that and what happened afterward with one of his sons. I mean, it's, it's horrific. And so what you need to see is God came to Noah, not because Noah was this perfect man, not because he had it all together, not because his character in and of himself is to be emulated. No, God came to Noah out of his mercy. And what we'll see that God, even in as far back as Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, God saves through faith, through faith, and not because of our own sense of self-worth, not because of our works, not because our righteousness, our lack thereof. God comes to a man named Faith and shows him mercy, mercy that he shows to you and me. So what does this story have to do with faith? We're going to talk about faith in three ways. Three ways that I think this story teaches us about what faith looks like, especially in an unbelieving world. The first way is this, that faith requires fear. Faith requires fear. I want you to look at the author of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 11, verse 7. So again, he says, By faith, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, Noah constructed an ark for the saving of his household. God comes to Noah. He tells Noah what he's going to do and why. He tells Noah, I see nothing but violence and corruption in the people I've made, and so I'm going to destroy the earth with a flood. That's what's going to happen. He tells Noah what he's going to do. He gives him warning. And then he gives instruction to build the ark. Again, look at verse 13. God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all the flesh. Uh, The earth is filled with violence. Through them, behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Uh, In Hebrew, gopher wood means gopher wood which means we don't know what it was made out of because nobody knows what gopher wood is. Uh, it's, it's transliterated, so we, we have no idea what gopher wood is. Uh, again, people have different ideas and theories about what kind of wood must have been used. Whatever gopher wood is, that's what it was made of. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. Verse 15, uh, this is Genesis 6, by the way, it's on your sheet. Genesis 5, 6, 15, uh, this is how you do make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, that's breadth, 50 cubits, it's height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. Okay, so if you take these dimensions of the ark, depending on what you believe a cubit to be, and there's different even theories about that, um, the idea that you need to have in your head is less like this um, very seaworthy vessel that's going to be able to cut through the waves and more just like a big giant floating box uh, that is uh, at least going to float. This is more like a raft. Noah uh, was not instructed to make a boat that could uh, go across the Atlantic. He was just trying to make something that would float and wait out the storm. So he's made this giant vessel which, by the way, um, it was big, but it wasn't as big as the Titanic, right? So it's big, but we have made much bigger things since the days of Noah uh, that have been seaworthy. 
Uh, to give you an idea, again, this is depending on how you think about what a cubit is, but the ark is basically about 500 feet long, all right? So that's almost two uh, football fields, okay? Think about it that way. Um, maybe one, uh, one and three quarters. So about two football fields long. Um, it was about 75 feet wide, okay? So you kind of get an idea of what that looks like in about 50 feet high or so. Um, it had, if you think about 18 inches for a cubit, it had 1,500,000 cubic feet of volume to hold stuff. What did it hold? Well, we'll see this in a second. It held not just Noah and his family, but it held lots and lots of animals. So somebody actually did this math, which is, you know, I'm just reading this to you. It could be right or wrong. I'll let you math majors figure out how accurate this is. But based on this guy's estimation, maybe that's around 250 railroad cars. Okay, so you ever seen railroad cars that are carrying um, different kinds of uh, goods and livestock? And so this is, this is great. Since the average one of these cars could carry um, 180-pound sheep or 160-50-pound sheep, depending on how big a sheep is, this, the idea is, in his estimations, the ark could carry about 20,000 to 40,000 sheep-sized animals, okay? And you're thinking, well, what, about, what if an animal is bigger than a sheep? Well, all animals have to be a baby at some point, right? <laughs> and so, again, one of the theories out there, how do you fit all these animals? On? Well, take, take the little ones. It's probably going to be in your best interest anyways, <laughs> if you have the little ones. Take the babies, uh, so, again, lots of theories out there. I don't want you to get lost in that. Uh, there's going to be lots of questions you have about, okay, how did that work? How did that work? We don't exactly know how it worked, but we know that it did because the Bible tells us that it did. Um, again, the Bible probably looked more like this box than a ship, and as it floated, we we're told in verse 17, for behold... I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So you think about this giant vessel, this ark. I want you to think for a second about Noah building it. Not just hearing this from God, but now going and building such a thing. I don't know if any of you are carpenters. Are any of you actually shipbuilders? Think about how complicated, how much work and effort this was for Noah and his family to build. Think about how much sweat and probably blood was spilt, how much time this took for Noah to build. The first thing I want you to begin to wrestle with is Think about the kind of faith that Noah had in order to produce this kind of action. God wasn't just an idea to him. And the idea of believing in God and trusting him wasn't just this, I'm going to check the box. But Noah was given instructions, detailed instructions, in the same way Moses was given detailed instructions to build a tabernacle, by the way. He was giving detailed instructions and he followed them that took great effort and great action. In other words, Noah's faith produced fruit. It produced action with his hands. 
one of the ways that you can begin to wrestle with your own faith, is my faith real, is does your faith produce fruit? Now, you can't really judge that, and I can't judge that. Only God can really judge that. But is your faith just kind of up here to where it doesn't actually change anything in your life? If so, it might actually be genuine faith. What we see in Noah is this kind of faith that takes God at his word. When he's given instructions, he's obedient to the point of great pain and toil, building a giant boat. Okay, why would he do that? Well, it's not just because he was obedient, it's because he believed God's word. And what did God tell him was going to happen? God told him that my vengeance is coming. My wrath is coming. My judgment is coming. A flood is coming. Noah believed him. And Noah was filled with fear. The other part about genuine faith that I want you to think about as we get into this is we live in a culture now where I'm not sure how much of our faith in God is fearful. So much so that even as I talk about fear this morning and I talk about how really the Bible calls us to fear the Lord, that that doesn't sit well with many of you. It doesn't sit well with me either. But the truth is, is that throughout the Bible, there's 300, over 300 references in the Bible about fearing God. That that is something we're actually called to do. Great John Bunyan, if you know Pilgrim's Progress, he wrote a great little book. Um, one of the men of our church gave it to me as a gift, uh, either right before or right after my sabbatical. And um, he talks about how fearing God is actually a grace. It's a gift that for God to give us fear of him is a grace. Now, how could that be? Let me read you just a few of the examples in the Bible about fear and what it has to do with faith. Uh, the Psalms. This is Psalm 2. You don't have to turn here. You can write these down for later if you want. Psalm 2, verse 11. Uh, Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Psalm 25, 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. I love that. That's become a great verse for me personally as I've struggled with the idea of fear and the idea of friendship of God. Uh, friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. This happened last week too. I'm going to power through if you can. Yeah. All right, Psalm 33, verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his steadfast love. Uh, Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and of the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 19, verse 23. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. So just a few examples in the Psalms and the Proverbs of how important it is for to fear the Lord, but not just in the Old Testament, let me give you the New Testament. Philippians 2, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. I could go on and on and on and on. So throughout the Bible, we see this picture of the godly man. The faithful man is the one who fears the Lord, the one who has reverence for him, 
the one who is in awe of him, the one who understands that God, yes, loves us, but he has every right and every power to crush us because of our sin. The question for you this morning is, just how much fear do you have of God? Do you see him as not just imminent and close and my friend, which he is, Do you also see him as powerful and mighty and transcendent? If our view of God is just that he's transcendent, we miss out on his love. The fact that he's drawn near to us in the person of Jesus, the fact that he's called us as his sons. But if he is just imminent, if he's just close, if he is just our buddy, we miss out on the fact that he is God and he is judge and he is just to judge our sin. God is both wrathful, he is judge, but he is also merciful. The Bible also talks about that those who do not have faith lack fear of the Lord. Romans 3, I want you to listen to this. Romans 3 verse 11, Paul's description of our default position outside of the cross of Jesus Christ. What does sin look like? What does unbelief look like? look like. This is what Paul says. He says, no one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive the venom of asp under their lips. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Their feet swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Genuine faith requires a healthy fear of the Lord, that you see Him with reverence, you see Him with awe. Second, second category or characteristic of faith in Noah's life, sometimes faith looks foolish. Sometimes faith looks foolish. I want you again to look at Hebrews 11, verse 7. The author of Hebrews continues. He says, In reverent fear, no one constructed the ark to save his household. By this, he condemned the world. Now, who's the he? Pronouns can be a funny thing in the Bible. By this, he condemned the world. The he there is Noah. Author of Hebrews says it's by his faith Noah condemned the world, that somehow Noah's faith served as condemnation for the world. Now, how could that be? How does Noah's faith condemn the world? I want you to look at Genesis 6, verse 17. It's there on your sheet. Again, the author of Genesis says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breadth of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So again, this idea that God is asking Noah to build the ark because he's sending his wrath. How crazy it must have been to see Noah building the ark. I want you to imagine that. Pretend that you were Noah's neighbor. (laughs) You ever seen your neighbors do something a little nutty? And you're like, man, what are they doing? You know, you see them working on something or, 
you know, or maybe you're my neighbor and you're like, why is that man still putting up his own Christmas lights? And why is he on the roof? And that's not safe. And what's he doing? You know, our, our neighbors do funny things. Think about Noah's neighbors. and They're looking at him like, what is this guy doing? And think about going up to him, right? Going up to Noah's garage. You know, Noah, what are you doing? What are you working on? This is quite a project here. You building a house? What are you building? He's like, no, I'm building a boat. Okay? Where's the, where's the ocean, Noah? You know, what are you doing? Well, God's going to send a flood. Oh, is he? Okay. Well, Noah, it's a really big boat. What are you going to put on the boat? Is it just for you? No, it's for a bunch of animals. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. It looked foolish to people. And I think it's even crazier than after Noah built the boat, he got on it. He got on the boat and he filled it with animals. And he was on the boat for 370 days. It's foolishness to an unbelieving world. Faith sometimes seems foolish. How did Noah's faith condemn the world? Noah's faith condemned the world because by faith Noah got on the boat. And by faithlessness, the rest of the world didn't. We live in an unbelieving world. Our faith as Christians is condemnation to an unbelieving world. It's a picture not only of God's mercy to us who do not deserve his grace or faith, by the way, which is a gift, but it's also a picture of the dangers of unbelief. What happens when we do not trust God and his promises, just like Adam and Eve? The serpent said, did God really say they didn't believe him, didn't think he was trustworthy, they went their own way. As God came and commanded Noah to do this amazingly, seemingly foolish thing, to build an ark, to build a boat, to fill it with animals from around the earth, the rest of the world was filled with unbelief. And through their unbelief, were prone to violence and to corruption and to sin. By faith, Noah condemned the world. Math, uh, in the book, Gospel of Matthew, Jesus looks at the story of Noah and the flood in the exact same terms. This is Jesus now referencing Noah and the ark and the flood. Matthew 24, verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Again, this should fill us with reverence and awe and holy fear. Jesus saying, one day I will return, and I will return in judgment and in mercy. And just like it was in the days of Noah, where people in their unbelief had no idea that a flood was coming, and they were swept away, so it will be that people in their unbelief will have no idea that Jesus Christ is true, that he's the way, the truth, and life, and that he is coming again to judge the world. It's a great picture of the holiness 
and judgment of God. By faith, Noah condemned the world because sometimes faith looks foolish to an unbelieving world that does not believe. Paul put it this way, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20. He said, where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What is Paul saying? Sometimes belief looks foolish to the world. And if you think building an ark and filling it with animals is foolish, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be crucified on a cross to save the world. There's nothing more foolish to our world to think that we worship a God-man who laid his life down, was executed in the most shameful of ways, and that that thing, that shameful thing, that thing that Paul says is a stumbling block, a folly, is the thing that gives us salvation. What is wise to the world sometimes is wrong. And what seems foolish to, the, to them is the object of our faith. The last thing, or we'll end before we go to our tables. How do you have faith like that? How do you have a faith that is full of fear and reverence and awe of God? How do you have faith that uh, leads to action, real fruit? How do you have faith that sometimes looks like foolishness to an unbelieving world? Well, as we will see with each one of these biblical figures throughout the book of Hebrews chapter 11, Faith does not exist without the faithfulness of God. Faith, real faith, genuine faith, is rooted in God's faithfulness to us. And this is what we see in Noah's life. Author of Hebrews ends the verse on Noah, verse 7, by saying that Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. That through faith we are made righteous, not by works. This promise of faith, salvation through faith, not by us and our own righteousness, but a righteousness that comes from God, the story begins even in Genesis. It's a promise that's reiterated throughout the Bible. It's a promise that the Bible calls a covenant. I want you to look again at your sheet. Genesis 16, verse 18. God tells Noah, but I will establish my covenant, that is my promise, with you. You shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Every living thing of flesh, you shall bring two of every sword of the ark to keep them alive with you. And they shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, the animals according to their kinds, the creeping things in the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in, and you shall keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. The story of Noah continues uh, well after Genesis 6. As I said before, it goes all the way through Genesis 9. And what you might not realize is the story of Noah is one giant chiasmus. Now, a chiasmus in, in the Old Testament 
is this a series of parallel verses, this literary structure uh, designed to kind of give us a picture of what a biblical account is really centered on. And there's lots of examples of this kind of parallelism uh, throughout the Bible, especially in the Psalms and poetry, but you see it here in Genesis 6 all the way through 9. The center of this chiasmus, the story of Noah, is Genesis 8.1. Let me read it to you. This is the hinge, the turning point of the story of Noah. Genesis 8.1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The hinge, the central verse of the story of Noah is that God remembered him. Even though he sent this floodwaters of judgment, God remembered Noah, his servant, and he had mercy on Noah. He had mercy on the ark that he had sent. The story of Noah is not just a story of judgment, it's also a story of grace and mercy. And after the floodwaters dried up, all the way in Genesis 9, this is what we hear. Genesis 9, verse 8, just listen. God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant, my promise, with you and your offspring after you, and every living creature that is with you. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I might make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. The story of Noah is not just a story of judgment, it's a story of mercy. God had mercy in sending the ark to Noah and saving him and his family from judgment. God had mercy in remembering Noah as the floodwaters recited, and God had mercy in making a promise to Noah and to all of us that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. And as a picture of his mercy, God made a sign. That sign was a bow in the sky. That sign is commonly referred to as a rainbow. And people associate today the idea of the rainbow with the idea of Noah and the flood. But what I want you to know is that the Bible in Hebrew doesn't use the word for rainbow, although that is what it's referring to, at least what we can see. But the Hebrew word is the word bow, like a war bow, a bow and arrow used for battle. And so God is saying, look, I have mercy on you. Though you deserve judgment and you deserve wrath, I'm giving you a promise. And as a sign of my promise of mercy and grace, I am hanging up my weapons. <laughs> I am laying my weapons down in the sky that I will not have wrath. My wrath has been satisfied. And as this great picture, the bow hanging up in the sky, pointed not down towards earth so that its arrow might strike us through, but it's pointed up to the heart of heaven. 
the idea that our great warrior has hung up his weapons against you and me because he poured out his wrath and he poured out his judgment on his own son. Many years later, God sent another kind of ark, another kind of salvation in the body of his son. The cross is a story of both judgment and mercy. Judgment and that you and I deserve death. You and I deserve wrath. Mercy and that God poured out his wrath on his own son so that you and I could have life. We do not have faith without the faithfulness of God. God was faithful enough to save a man named Noah from destruction. He's faithful enough to save you and me by sending his son to be our salvation. Let me pray for you, send you to your tables. God, we pray that you'd be with us, that the story of Noah not only is a true story, a historical story, but a story that is essential for us as believers to see the nature of not only our faith, but your faithfulness to us. We thank you that you have hung up your war bow in the sky, that you will no longer pour out your wrath on us in the picture of a flood but that you've given your wrath and poured it out on your son, Jesus. We thank you that though you judge us, though you have every right to condemn us, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Lord, help us to see that you are a God of wrath and a God of mercy. We pray that you would give us great reverence in all of you this morning, that our faith would include a holy fear of you, but that we'd also see that you, the God of the universe, has drawn near in your son, Jesus. May we see that you are faithful. May we see that you are good. May we see that you are mighty. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.